This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. In supporting the work we do, two bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of every episode, while full membership gets you that, plus members-only bonus episodes with extra clips and commentary. Sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the overwhelming benefits to society of labor, health, and safety regulations, and how the only people who don't come out ahead are those who have to pay for them. Clips today come from Pitchfork Economics, This Is Hell, Delete Your Account, and The Dig. Police officers don't want to be held to a high standard. Uh, my children don't want to be held to a high standard. <laughs> I don't particularly like being held to a high standard myself. It is a truism of, I suppose, human existence that people like other people to be held to a high standard, but prefer not to be held to a high standard themselves. And so the issue of regulation is a very important one in human societies because it sort of defines how we relate to one another. And if there's one thing the trickle-downers love to say, it is that uh, the rich and the powerful and big, big companies shouldn't be constrained by regulation. And if we do that, that it kills jobs and growth and wages and everything else. Again, taking this claim, taking the canonical form of trickle-down economics, that if we in any way constrain the rich or the powerful, it will be bad for everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you look at the historical record, there's just things that now... You know, you might hear, oh, I don't know, say Andy Puzder, the former head of uh, Carl's Jr. and uh, Hardy's chain of uh, fast food restaurants claim that. If your concern is to create entry level jobs for young Americans, then a $15 minimum wage is something you should be protesting against. But if you look back, you'll see the puzzlers of their day saying that if they weren't allowed to have children work in their factories, <laughs> that they would go out of business and right. nobody would have any new clothing. You right. know, my favorite one is, uh, is somebody who represented a, a dentist organization saying that if the government forced dentists to wear masks when they performed oral <laughs> surgery on their patients, that they would lose the patient doctor bond that comes <laughs> from being able to see someone's face. And, right. You know, and it sounds ludicrous now, but at the time people took it seriously. Right. And it, th I believe that speech was before Congress or a lawmaking body of some right. sort. Well, you know, the truth is that they just didn't want to spend the money on the mask. Right, yeah, paper masks, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's that's the summer home and, eventually. You know, up. and the thing that's so interesting is that when people make contemporary arguments against regulation, they are often plausible because you don't know the future. Right. Right? That's the thing. You do, you actually do not know the future. But when you go back in history and mine for these quotes, they are always ridiculous. Mm -hmm. My favorite, of course, is the objection to the uh, Fair Labor Standards Act, which was passed in 1938. And I'm looking at a quote right here that said that the, the Fair Labor Standards Act would create chaos in business never yet known to us. It sets an all-time high in crackpot legislation. This is a quote from 1937. Mm -hmm. And again, the thing is, is that nothing happened to the economy after the FLSA passed other than we created the American middle class right, <laughs> and, yes. and, and, you know, multiple generations of huge amounts of shared prosperity. It's so interesting to contextualize these quotes in history because the more of them you look at, the more ridiculous the contemporary claims 
tend to be. But I think what's important is to sort of deconstruct for people why regulation matters and why it's not just not bad for growth. It actually is the thing that creates growth Mm -hmm. in market economies. And to do that, you have to think back to earlier episodes where we learned about what true prosperity really is. Mm -hmm. So to be fair, if in the neoliberal framework where GDP, which is basically any kind of economic activity, is the way in which you judge whether the economy is improving, then anything you do to restrict any kind of economic activity at all is bad, is bad for growth and therefore bad for everybody. But once you see prosperity as improving welfare, like actually improving people's lives, and the way we've characterized that is solutions to human problems, then you instantaneously can see that some economic activity actually solves problems, but lots of economic activity actually creates more problems than it solves. And the point of regulation is to encourage economic activity that improves welfare and to discourage economic activity that doesn't, that destroys welfare. And there are no successful economies in the world that aren't highly regulated. In fact, you can basically stack rank the countries in the world from most prosperous to least prosperous. And what you quickly see is there are no libertarian paradises in the world where nobody pays any taxes, nobody follows any rules, and everybody lives like a king. And 100% of the highly prosperous, stable, and secure economies in the world are highly regulated, high-tax states. There are 205 simultaneous experiments in this going on in the world, and, you know, like, empirically, the evidence is super, super obvious. right in a time of globalization as an ever-spreading flood of capital transforms our world your book's goal is to better understand how low-wage workers are starting to resist to think and act globally as well as locally how effective can low-wage workers thinking and acting globally be in bringing new energy to the u.s left to you is this the practical international connection that the u.s left may be missing yeah i i think that it absolutely is and i think that uh, it's, a, it's a reciprocal relationship because activists abroad are also taking ideas and energy from the U.S. left. And so I think, you know, in a time when McDonald's and Walmart are the two biggest uh, private employers in the world and the only bigger employers are the U.S. and Chinese militaries, there is really a need for, a tr- you know, a transnational left. And there was always a lot of talk about that, you know, in the labor movement, you know, going back a century ago. But I think with social media and the rise of, of transnational corporations, the possibilities for organizing transnationally are greater than ever before. This leads to another part. You, you, uh, you write that the activists you spoke with were all engaged in fighting the same things, poverty wages, the disappearance of public services, education, health care, water, the transformation of workers into independent contractors. And with that, a loss of seniority, benefits, pensions, disrespect, sexual harassment and violence, mass evictions and disregard of people's rights. To what extent did these activists see this as a growing global uprising against late capitalism, neoliberalism, whatever you want to call the system that – 
cause the poverty, privatization, precarity, the, the abuse of your physical self as well as the abuse of your rights? Or did they view this all as first and foremost a local fight? No, I mean, I think it's both. I mean, obviously, when you've got workers organizing in the Philippines, there are very particular conditions there. In Cambodia, the same. In Bangladesh as well. In South Africa, Mexico, the places that I looked at in this book, there are obviously very particular local conditions. You know, as there are in the U.S., it's different for workers organizing in Mississippi, in New York, in Chicago, in L.A. That said, they definitely see themselves as part of a global struggle, and they are, and therefore they are working through global actions. So there are, there are annual housekeepers, uh, weeks of action where you have hotel housekeepers walking off the job and protesting and, and trying to make their, their conditions visible around the world, right? From the Maldives to Abuja, Nigeria to Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, you have fast food workers staging these days of action where, you know, McDonald's workers, McDonald's is, is, you know, in a hundred countries and you have workers walking off the job at the same time making the same kinds of points and broadcasting to each other via social media, via cell phone videos, you know, via text and Twitter. So social media is a really is a really important part of this, as is transnational capital. And workers who work for something like a McDonald's or a Walmart understand that they have, you know, very little power, relatively speaking, locally, although they put their bodies on the line, they block access to stores, they sit down in the middle of the streets to get their point across. But they understand that if workers are, are doing this all around the world, then even massive corporations have to sit up and take notice, and they have. How much of that, I was just thinking of this while you were responding, uh, how much is that massive size of a company like Walmart or a company like McDonald's not only the site of its power, but at the, at the same point for activists, a site of its weakness, because then you'll have many more people, many more workers having a shared experience, and therefore they can share that experience and possibly mobilize together. Exactly. And I think, you know, one really vivid example of that was in the summer of 2015, the, the Senate in Brazil, the federal Senate, before Brazil took its shift to the right after the 2016 coup. But in the summer of 2015, Brazilian senators were hearing from McDonald's workers, Arcos Dorados there, all across the country about labor abuses. And McDonald's is the second largest employer in Brazil, as it is in the world. And so the Brazilian Senate convened hearings to see how McDonald's was affecting labor conditions and driving down wages around the world, and they invited people from around the world. And there was an amazing moment when one of the, the young men I profile in this book, a Tampa McDonald's worker named Blue Rainier, uh, was in, in Brazil, and he met a guy from Tokyo, a McDonald's worker from Tokyo. And they began to talk, and they realized, as Blue said, it's my story exactly. But the chilling moment came when they rolled up their sleeves. The guy from Japan rolled up his sleeves to show these burns on his arm. And Blue rolled up his sleeve, and he had burns on exactly the same places. And this guy, Benedict Murillo from Manila, another fast food worker, McDonald's worker, rolled up his sleeves, and he had burns in exactly the same places. So 
they began to see themselves as part of a new global labor force, as, you know, Marillo calls them McBrothers, right? They, they all had to turn around their orders in 90 seconds. They all have to reach across boiling oil to do it. Um, you know, they all face the same kinds of, you know, extended hours where McDonald's managers make them check out, you know, and then check back in and continue working so they're not paid overtime. So they, they, because of these global meetings by workers for the same corporations all over the world, yeah, they've begun to see themselves as a, as a global labor force, and that is, that's empowering. I mean, it's terrifying in some ways, but I think it's more empowering. How much does that be? How much does that overcome any obstacle that Americans may have, American activists may have in their inward thinking? Because you write U.S. activists, especially African-American and Latinx workers, uh, reminded me that uh, their battles had begun long before President Trump and that they planned to keep on struggling as they had for centuries outside the U.S. activists facing crackdowns by the murderous Duterte uh, regime in the Philippines, as well as the brutal regimes of Hasina in uh, Bangladesh and Hun Sen in Cambodia put our inward-looking American grief in perspective. How much does that inward-looking perspective undermine U.S. activism's ability to make uh, international connections? Well, I think it does, and that's why um, that's why I think it's important that workers have started to look abroad. And so, you know, when I interviewed workers who, who met their counterparts in in the Philippines, met their counterparts in Japan, you know, met their counterparts from from you know from Mexico or other parts of the world, uh, it, it it enabled them to think about you know, left activism in a much broader way. And as I said, I think that activists of color here in the United States already did. So right after the election, I interviewed this extraordinary young activist from Las Vegas, Stretch Sanders, African-American, 21-year-old, who was actually the the nephew of Chicago Black Panthers. So he had activism in his lineage. And he said, you know, yeah, I'm upset, but people keep asking me if I'm scared. And he said, my brothers and sisters were already being shot down in the streets by police. My coworkers were already getting the knock on the door at dawn, and, and parents were being dragged away from their children and sent places their children didn't know where they were. He said, so yeah, the election of Trump galvanizes me, and it makes me feel like I have to keep on working. But I was doing it before Trump's election, and I'm just going to keep doing what I know I have to do. And as you were mentioning earlier, the uh, Tampa McDonald's worker, Blue Rainier, uh, he meets uh, Benedict Murillo from uh, Manila. He meets uh, people from uh, Quezon in the Philippines. He meets uh, different uh, McDonald's workers from around the world. You point out that they call themselves McBrothers and how they all have these stripes on their arms from the burn. How much do you think worse working conditions and lower pay have led to whatever success neoliberalism has had and any success late capitalism is having today. How dependent is the economy's success as it stands right now on low wages and poor benefits? Well, I actually think that um, our measures for a healthy economy are, are really out of whack. And so I heard this really cheery jobs report the other day. And, you know, they were talking about how, God, you know, there are more people employed than ever before. And isn't this great? And the economy is doing so well. And I thought... You know, the truth is what I found in researching this book is that 
The measure of a healthy economy is not any longer uh, the unemployment rate. Uh, the measure of, of a healthy economy is whether, you know, not whether people have jobs, but whether they have to work two or three jobs just to pay their bills. And increasingly across the United States and around the world, that's the case. And that's one of the reasons that people have been willing to rise up. They felt like, you know, again and again, people said to me, we have nothing to lose. Right, Blue Rainier showed me a paycheck for two weeks' work, um, $119. He said, I have nothing to lose. I'll go get another low-wage job. But what we have to do is transform these jobs into good jobs. And I think neoliberal capitalism has undermined the consensus of you know, the mid-20th century all over the world that you have to have some regulations on capitalism. You have to have you know, maximum hours and minimum wage and safety standards regulations and you know, in a little bit broader distribution of the profits. And I think we've reached the point where the distribution of the profits is so out of whack. It's just, you know, a handful of people, something like 62 people around the world, according to a recent Oxfam report, control as much wealth as the bottom half of the human race. That's, I, I just think that's not viable economically. You know, you can get some economist on, I'm sure he'll argue with me, and I'm not an economist, but it just seems like pure common sense. And I think, I think the workers understand that, and it's, and it's part of what's given them the courage to rise up. Today's episode is sponsored by the new book, Cannabis, The Illegalization of Weed in America, which delves deep into the troubling history and legacy of cannabis legislation in the U.S. Did you know that marijuana was introduced to the Americas during violent colonialism, that the first recorded use of a joint was in 1850s Mexico, or that it made its way to the U.S. through the immigrant labor force, where it was shared with black laborers? Now, would it surprise you to hear that it didn't take long for American lawmakers to decry cannabis as the vice of, quote, inferior races, unquote? And would that give you a glimpse of insight into the current state of drug enforcement? For instance, that if you identify as a member of a minority group in the U.S., you are up to eight times as likely to be arrested for violating cannabis laws. Whether you're a cannabis enthusiast, a history buff, or a graphic novel fan, this book has something for you. That's Cannabis, the Illegalization of Weed in America. Get your own copy wherever books are sold, and smoke out the truth for yourself. And you can find a link to more information in the show notes. You also wrote about something really, really interesting, which is that I'm just going to read out this this sentence, this couple of sentences. You wrote, misogyny doesn't fully explain this gray area discrimination. It's obviously a gendered experience, but pregnant bodies inspire contempt because they threaten disrupted operations and lost profit. A pregnant body can't always be forced to work seven days a week, a loss of control over labor that infuriates capitalism. So tell us more mm. about why you don't see this as just like, oh, this is clear-cut misogyny. It is, but that isn't the whole story here. Yeah, I mean, it's like, um, because it's like a very material reason to them why they don't, you know, I was talking about that in reference to looking for a job and, you know, what's so scary about that and when they can see that you're pregnant. Um, and it's, um, you know, there is obviously you know, regular old sexism as part of that, but they can see that you have a very material impact on their future, um, like production or, you know, whatever work you're doing. 
um, because you will need time off. Um, you will need to be able to leave work at random hours or early, um, because so many things come up when you have a kid. Um, and that was, um, part of what I based that on was I worked at a bakery several years ago and I had been in, in the manager's office, like filling out a form or something when one of the bosses came in talking about someone who had just applied. And, um, she, this applicant had mentioned that she had a few young children and my boss who was a woman with children and a job, um, like she just had this like hatred in her voice. Like she's gonna, she's gonna ask to like leave early or she's gonna like need certain hours, you know, because she has kids. And it was just like, the tone of her voice was like the most hateful thing I've ever heard in my life. And it just disgusted me. And so I was kind of drawing on like that experience. Um, that's like partly what fed my, like this fear and like my understanding of, you know, how they treat pregnant people or people with children. Um, and um, the gender part of that is obviously they expect that, you know, a, a woman would be the one taking care of those children, you know, or, you know, meeting the time off. Um, but right. it also affects, this is all relevant to like any kind of worker with any kind of disability too, that especially ones that are visible. Um, like if you're job searching or, or things like that, a lot of my postal coworkers had severe disabilities that weren't being treated because they had such a poor, um, uh, track record of getting them workman's comp in a timely manner. So I was working with people mm -hmm. with partially dislocated shoulders who are still lifting Amazon packages and their hand was turning blue. And so, you know, pregnancy is just a temporary version of that. Um, or maybe that not if you so count fucking, like, yeah, God, that, that is so fucking enraging to me. And it's just a horrific cycle because you need the job to get the money, to get the shitty fucking healthcare that you'll be able to afford. And if you lose the job, then you get none of that. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's just, I, it's just so beyond horrific. And you talk a bit about, um, part of this discrimination being visible in the sense that it's difficult for you to apply for jobs now with your growing belly and then wondering if you don't get a call back, is it because they saw that I'm pregnant or is it because of something else? Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. Again, I mentioned because, um, you know, especially for people like me, whose resume is like garbage, you know, <laughs> like it's just a random assortment of like manual labor jobs and service jobs and things like that. Um, and, um, so you're like, you have no proof that you're a qualified applicant for almost any job, you know? So it's just, it just leaves you kind of with this weird mental state of, you know, what, which part of me is wrong, you know, to, to the bosses, you know, it's like, is it all of the above? Is it one of these things? You know, so it's, just, it's, um, you know, I didn't put this in there, but I was thinking about it as like a, it's like a kind of body dysmorphia, you know, seeing yourself kind of grow into like a, a problematic body. And you're not sure if like the, the visit, like how your body is perceived is, is the, is a problem to other people, mm. you know? So, um, yeah. And to cap yeah. to capitals, you're just this like ticking time bomb of, um, uh, unpredictability and, um, you know, not being a reliable, um, source of labor. I think in, even in terms of, uh, the pregnancy discrimination laws, there's a class bias built in where you could sort of take advantage of this if you had additional security, if you had a, you know, a partner that had, um, you know, these additional, uh, uh, you know, ad additional medical coverage and things like that, that could allow you to, to just take time off. And uh, right. if you had a real family wage, even though that's problematic as well, in terms of uh, a, a discourse around reproductive labor, but right. you cite in terms of, again, formulating this broadly, uh, the 
New York Times article from last year by Jessica Silver Greenberg and Natalie Kittreff that chronicled those hellish conditions in those Verizon warehouses oh, operated yeah. by a company called XPO. And there's just brutal disregard you see in these these warehouses for the pregnant workers as well as just sick workers, right? There's also mm-hmm. just a ho- horrific anecdote in there about a worker who was uh, a, a woman in her late 50s and just dropping dead one day on the floor. Yep. But the stories about pregnant workers are just horrific. Uh, health problems, just they're doing the same sorts of lifting and, and moving things around that you are, are doing actually as part of your job uh, with the postal service or you were. And that causes health problems, including miscarriages among the pregnant workers. Uh, I'm just going to quote for a second, and I, I want you to, to give us your take on this uh, expose. Uh, refusing to accommodate pregnant women is often completely legal. Uh, this is sort of like explaining the pregnancy uh, right. discrimination act. Under federal law, companies don't necessarily have to adjust pregnant women's jobs, even when lighter work is available and their doctors send letters urging a reprieve. The Pregnancy Discrimination Act is the only federal law aimed at protecting expecting mothers at work. It's four paragraphs long and 40 years old. It says that a company has to accommodate pregnant workers' requests only if it is doing so already for other employees who are similar in their ability or inability to work. Mm -hmm. So in essence, it says companies that don't give a fuck about anybody can continue to do so for their pregnant employees as well. And, And it just, it means that again, just like so many other parts of our economy, if you have supplemental income, if you have other people, family connections that can let you withstand this, then it's tenable, perhaps. But otherwise, your baby uh, is going to be at risk. You are going to be at risk. And uh, it's it's absolutely unconscionable. And the different health risks between blue-collar workers is a point I want you to sort of – this is maybe the question that I want to leave you uh, uh, with to comment on – is how do you see this class division reflected in the the different outcomes that uh, blue collar and service workers on the one hand and middle or upper class workers on the other hand uh, are actually faced with when they're when they're you know pregnant? Right. Yeah. So a lot of um, like paid. Uh, paid maternity leave laws at the state level, which there's only a, a handful of, you know, or or these. Um, uh, you know, FMLA and things like that. They're, as far as I can tell, written for people with white collar jobs, like already fairly stable jobs that might even already offer some of those benefits. Um, because even something like FMLA, it, you know, it's it's doing the bare minimum of just protecting your job if you need to take unpaid time off. But for most of these people in service level jobs, having four weeks of unpaid time off is nearly impossible. Um, so like, that's one way that it just, they're, they're being written without the entire population in mind. They're written for already secure workers. Um, so, um, that was one thing I saw because I have, I had multiple coworkers that had children while they were at the postal service. And, you know, I would talk to them occasionally just trying to gather like what their experience was like. And I talked to one RCA, um, and then also some regulars who have a few more protections. Um, but, uh, but all of them only took like two weeks off after having a baby. And then we're back to manual labor um, because we had no paid maternity leave and um, they couldn't afford to take more than that, more, more unpaid time off. So um, it's just like, what's the point of even having FMLA at that point? Because 
um, it, it, it doesn't apply to us at all. You know, there, there's no reasonable situation where that would benefit us, you know? Um, so, um, yeah, that's, that's like a huge part of it that I, something I recognize. And then the, um, like paid maternity leave fight has been kind of frustrating to me because, um, it just, it just assumes that we're already all on the same level playing field and that we're just trying to like increase the benefits for pregnant workers. But, um, you know, there's already just so many existing gaps for blue collar, lower class, um, undocumented workers, workers of color that, um, it's, I just, I want that. I want paid, you know, paid maternity leave, but I also have this, huh, that there's going to be some loophole that, you know, I fall through and like all of these people fall through. Um, and also being unemployed and pregnant, one of those things that I, that occurred to me was if it's most likely tied to employment, what about pregnant workers who are currently unemployed and need, you know, money, you know, and it's hard to get hired when you're eight or nine months pregnant or, with a one or two month old, um, you know, I just have this, I, I haven't read a lot of these proposals, but I just have this hunch that is probably tied to employment when we should be paying people if they are eight or nine months pregnant and, or like early on in a child rearing, no matter what, you know? So it's just, yeah. it's one of those things that just assumes employment, which is not everyone that assumes a fairly high income privilege as well. We tend to think of trickle-down as, as working in three tiers. The transfer of wealth from the 99% to the top 1%. Uh, we think of wage suppression and lower taxes for the wealthy. But I, I feel as though deregulation slips through the cracks. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that functions in terms of uh, income inequality. Uh, it is a form of trickle-down economics. Uh, if you define trickle-down economics as giving benefits uh, to the wealthy on the supposition that somehow those benefits are going to trickle down to the middle class and the poor, uh, they haven't with regard to tax benefits. We've had now years, starting with Ronald Reagan, in which we've seen uh, that tax Benefits that go to the wealthy don't help anybody. They don't actually end up raising wages for people in the middle or at the bottom. Uh, and we have also seen it with regulations, uh, particularly under the Trump administration, uh, where regulation after regulation has been either repealed, curtailed, or not enforced on the supposition or on the promise that somehow the economy is going to grow these businesses are going to be doing better without the regulations, and everybody, therefore, is going to be better off. Well, every step along that so-called logical pathway has been proven wrong. You get rid of uh, some of these very important regulations that are really protections of public health, uh, like the clean coal regulations with regard to coal plants and energy sources, uh, or regulations that are governing or have until now uh, been governing education uh, and uh, the financing of education, where we basically said as a country, no, we're not going to continue to provide a lot of money to uh, private for-profit 
educational institutions that are not really educating, that are just in the business of raking in money. Uh, those student loans are not going to be given any longer. They're not going to be honored. That was the regulation, uh, and the Trump administration is in the process of getting rid of it. Uh, the Trump administration is also rolling back Dodd-Frank, which was a very important regulation for separating investment and commercial banks and therefore not repeating the financial crisis that we had in 2007-2008. The Trump administration is rolling back not just environmental but also very important public health regulations uh, having to do with asbestos uh, and many other chemicals. Uh, These are all being done at the behest of industries and industry lobbyists who are now very often in positions of political power in the Trump administration on, again, the very flimsy public excuse that they will increase corporate profits that will make everybody better off. Well, they are increasing corporate profits. Corporate profits, uh, the combination of the tax cuts, the corporate tax cut, and also these regulatory rollbacks have increased corporate profits dramatically. And the stock market has done extraordinarily well. But average Americans are bearing the risk. Average Americans are going to be doing worse off and are doing worse off because all of these protections that they have relied on are no longer in place. And they don't have much of the stock market. It's not that average Americans really are are benefiting from a huge surging stock market. The richest 1% owns over 40% of the entire value of the stock market. Uh, The top 10% of Americans, the richest 10%, have over 80% of the value of the United States stock market. So nothing is trickling down except the risks and the burdens and the costs and the future risks. It seems as though, even though it doesn't benefit the majority of Americans, regulation is a dirty word to a significant portion of the American voting public. Do you think this is a successful messaging campaign by conservatives, or is there sort of a deeper meaning behind the animus that many Americans have to the idea of regulation? Well, it's been a message campaign for Republicans for much of the past 50 years. And, you know, to some extent, there's a kernel of truth. I I am not in favor of any regulation whose benefits are less than their costs. Uh, But you've got to ask benefits for who? And costs for whom? I mean, if, it's, if, if they're just costs on business and businesses, uh, major investors and executives, uh, but the benefits are for most Americans in terms of health or safety or labor protections or protections against fraud, well, then it's a different kind of cost-benefit analysis you want to do. You want to make sure that most Americans are protected Uh, And instead of using the word regulations, we ought to use the word protections, because that's what regulations are. Regulation has become a bad word. Well, it's time to use the real meaning, which is protections. If those protections are worthwhile, if they're important, uh, even though they may cost a company a lot of money, uh, well, we should say they, they, they have to be in place. If they're going to protect workers from losing their limbs or their lives, then those regulations are important, even if they cost companies a lot of money. 
That sort of brings a new meaning to the phrase rule of thumb. Uh, when you were labor secretary for Bill Clinton, uh, can you talk a little bit about some examples uh, that you might have had with uh, considering whether a protection was good for the people or bad for uh, the people and sort of the cost-benefit analysis that you had to do? Well, sure. Let's take a, a very common worker safety regulation, which requires that if workers are cleaning complicated machinery, uh, they've got to be able to shut down those machines completely so that the machinery does not start up accidentally and cause grave injury to those workers. Well, a lot of businesses complained. They said they didn't want to attach those automatic shutdown systems and valves that was just too expensive. Uh, and they made a case to Congress, and there was a lot of pressure brought to bear upon me when I was Secretary of Labor. But then I looked at the data, and the data showed that at times when businesses violated this rule, the result was an increase in worker deaths and an increase in loss of limbs because these machinery, these pieces of machinery would start up accidentally and when workers were inside them trying to clean them. Well, you know, my reaction was not only are we not going to get rid of this regulation, but we ought to enforce it more heavily and impose higher fines on businesses that essentially ignored these regulations. You see, it's not just a matter of whether you have a regulation in place or not. It's also a matter of whether it's enforced. And one thing that the Trump administration has done, and certainly big American businesses that don't want to pay these costs have done it time and time again, is that they have made sure that Congress does not appropriate the money necessary for enforcing regulations that are on the books if the businesses cannot get rid of the regulations simply through the legislative process. If they don't have enough clout uh, to repeal the regulations or get rid of them legislatively or even administratively, they just make sure there's not enough money to enforce them. What do you think that hopefully a future Democratic administration could learn from uh, past Democratic administrations, the Clinton and Obama administration, in terms of protections and and how to enforce them and how to communicate to the people about the importance of them? Uh, well, first of all, I think that uh, progressives and future administrations, whether they're Republican or Democratic, uh, ought to be talking about regulations as protections, health protections, worker protections, protections against fraud, protections against injury, and so, uh, so on. They are protections. Uh, if a cost-benefit analysis shows that the costs for average people are much greater than the benefits for average people, then there's no place, there's no reason to have a regulation. But you shouldn't just look at the costs for business uh, and measure them against the benefits for average working people or average uh, consumers, we're also talking about consumer regulations or consumer protections, uh, because you see, there are these people are in different positions uh, in terms of income and wealth. Uh, you know, businesses, shareholders, top executives, top investors, they may have to pay a little bit more uh, in order that average working people or consumers or your small investor uh, is adequately protected. So it's not enough just to do cost-benefit analysis. You want to also want to be uh, examining who's benefiting and whose uh, costs and risks are going up. 
This show runs on recurring donations from listeners just like you who've signed up to support the show on Patreon. Each hour-long episode we produce is the result of literally dozens of hours of work. Usually about 30 hours of source material has to be listened to, sifted, curated. I go through multiple rounds of editing and refining of the content before almost all of it is discarded and the final selection is made to produce the show. In short, A lot of effort goes into the production of the show because we care deeply about not just providing good ideas and getting them out into the world, but in finding the best versions of the best ideas we possibly can. Due to this high workload, we end up with a relatively low turnout of the show. You know, we only put out two episodes a week, which means we have less than half the opportunity to bring in ad revenue than if we were doing a live-to-tape, five-days-a-week show. And that's why direct support is so important. So if you get value out of the show and you want to support the work that makes it possible, the most important thing you can do is become a member on Patreon. Members get to listen to an ad-free version of the show, participate each week in a poll that helps decide which topics we're going to cover, and they receive bonus clips and commentary in separate members-only episodes. You can sign up at patreon.com slash bestoftheleft. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash bestoftheleft. And thanks so much for your support. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, stop tech companies from disrupting labor laws with marketplace platform laws. Disrupting markets wasn't enough. Big tech is now flagrantly disrupting a century of labor rights victories that were already crumbling under the weight of the gig economy. And these high-tech companies are wielding their influence the old-fashioned way. Uber, Lyft, Handy, Amazon, TaskRabbit, and more are investing millions in lobbying in dozens of states to be treated differently under the law than any other company with workers. They want state laws to classify their companies as marketplace platforms which would then classify any person who works for them as an independent contractor instead of an employee. This classification allows the companies to skip out on paying into the state's unemployment insurance fund, paying a state-mandated minimum wage, payroll taxes, and overtime. Not only that, but without employees, they no longer have to worry about legal responsibility for workers' compensation or sexual harassment claims. These carve-outs in state labor law create confusion over how a worker should file claims and harms other workers in similar lines of work by putting companies with actual employees at a disadvantage. The tech companies say they are being burdened by outdated laws and are being unfairly hit with class-action lawsuits, and that might be an argument if they were actually providing a true marketplace platform like the Yellow Pages, but they're not. Rebecca Smith of the National Employment Law Project put it like this, quote, Companies like Uber and Handy are not mere marketplaces. They frequently and unilaterally set pay rates, substantially control when, where, and how people work, and impose discipline on those that do not meet rigid standards that they also set unilaterally, just like traditional employers, unquote. 
Despite this, these companies have successfully enacted marketplace platforms legislation in Arizona, Florida, Indiana, Iowa, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Utah. Just last month, the Texas Observer reported that the home cleaning service app Handy hired high-powered stealth New York lobbyists who dictated the marketplace platform rule to the Texas Workforce Commission without ever having disclosed themselves as lobbyists. So why go stealth now? Because workers, unions, and labor rights activists see what's happening and they're fighting back. And you can help. Right now, in California, a bill known as Assembly Bill 5 has been introduced to codify the California Supreme Court landmark decision known as Dynamax. That ruling tightened the legal definition of an employee and would shift thousands of workers from contractor status to payroll employee status. Help make this law a reality not just in California, but in your state too, by calling your members of Congress and getting involved with your state and local labor organizations. Check out the hashtag YesOnAB5 on Twitter for more information. On the national level, Democrats have been holding labor reform hearings in the House. In the coming months, Senator Bernie Sanders and Representative Mark Pocan are expected to reintroduce the Workplace Democracy Act, which, among other things, narrows the independent contractor standards that harm gig economy workers. Start building the support and buzz now by calling your members of Congress and spreading the word. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if protecting hard-won labor rights from the greed of Silicon Valley is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about stopping marketplace platform laws via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Can you stand up and be counting? There's a body in a crowd Put your name on a petition With your signature so proud Can you raise your voice so loud As you stand with head on bowed Weather beating on your brow Demanding answers here and now Cause that's how you make a difference In this fickle world of change That brings me very neatly to my, my last question, which is, say you're a young radical right now, a, a profile, incidentally, that I think fits many of my listeners. What should you do if you're this young radical and are committed to the labor movement? One, what type of skills should you be focusing on developing? And two, should radicals be getting rank and file union jobs and getting involved in reform efforts or organizing in the workplaces they already are, or joining unions as staff organizers, or all of the above? All of the above. Oh my God, for sure, all of the above. Because it's going to take all of the above to actually win, right? So um, I once was a young radical <laughs> many years ago, and I made one decision, right, which was to go out on the staff side. There's plenty of good argument that we also need to go in on the rank and file side. I don't think it's either or. I think it's both and. So I think, you know, I think it's fair to say we could find plenty of people who went into the rank and file. We've discussed many of the locals on this, in this interview already, and some of the education unions that did just that, that had a huge impact. And I also know a fair amount of people, myself included, the organizing director at the teachers union, uh, Brian McNamara, like many of us who took the staff approach side and went and got seriously skilled up. We went and, fa if you're going to take the staff side, by the way, you need to find 
the really good unions and go work for them so that you actually get the experience. Like I wound up working for, I'm going to safely say, some of the smartest, most progressive and unions in this country. So I got amazing skill development as a young organizer. And it's never failed me, whether I'm running a political campaign in the, in the kind of race we were just discussing, right? Like I've, I've run a lot of political races from the base of the labor movement where we did challenge um, the incumbent. By the way, if you read my first book, you'll realize that, you know, the first big trouble I got in in SEIU was for doing just that back in 2003, right? Was challenging, was working with a big local of ours to challenge some incumbent, some incumbent. So, but we won anyway. So, you know, so I digress. The point is what young radicals need to do is learn how to win. So whether you're going to go on the inside and join a reform effort, I mean, I wouldn't do that willy nilly. You better get some training before you do that. And if you're in an existing workplace that you like, you need to step out and look to places where you can get the kind of skill training and skill development. You need to do some reading. You should start some book groups. That's how it all began in West Virginia. That's how it began in Chicago. That's how it began in Los Angeles. That's how it began in Oakland. So where should a young rank and file person, worker be be looking for for that sort of advice and training? You know, a whole bunch of them recently apparently read No Shortcuts. That was nice to know. Before that, they read Family Clients, No Shock Doctrine. I mean, one is you can start doing self-education, right? Which is like, find the handful of things that you can read. And there's a lot of people doing this already, but, you know, start with the book group. Um, uh, you can go to labor notes. You can go to a handful of books that are not just labor notes. You can now, in a whole bunch of states, go to the labor centers that they have. You can even go to more tra- more traditional community organizing basic training, like basic training. I mean, people could criticize Midwest Academy of Organizing, but it's where I started when I was 17 years old. And the fact that I learned what power analysis was and what strategy was and the difference between a tactic and a strategy at age 17 is because I went to something called the five-day training at Midwest Academy of Organizing. Now, have I? do I think that I've gone well beyond that in my development? Yeah, of course. But like at 17... That was pretty powerful stuff. Like I understood. When I was eighteen, I was at Union Summer in in Chicago, SEIU local one. Right. So there you go. Right. Like, and by the way, um, many of the staff, many actually, actually, it is true. Many, you know, many of the staff that I either worked with directly or came to work with me in various campaigns in the last twenty five years came out of the Union Summer in Stanford, Connecticut, where they came to work with me when they were in their teens. I'm not going to name them all, but there's a lot of them, right? And they're all <laughs> over the labor movement now. So, so yeah, you need to go to Jobs with Justice. By the way, Jobs with Justice does some really good training. So it's like there are resources out there. The key is this. It does take skill. So get yourself skilled up. And it, it mostly starts with commitment, but it sure does take skill. And the thing I've always said about organizing, I'm always going to say about organizing, it is not rocket science, but it is a skill. And what, 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 the, what the sort of left and, and self-identified radicals don't do enough is get involved in win or lose fights with real deadlines and test themselves. Because you do not know if what you're doing is working, if all you're ever doing is counting turnout at a rally. I don't give a shit about turnout at a rally. I care about can you build a plan and win, something that has a deadline attached to it. And part of what um, I've always loved about the labor movement is a lot of things, but one is we have real deadlines all the time. Every contract is a deadline. Every contract tests our metal. Are the workers participate? And that's what structure tests are, right? So every young, not just young, I mean, everyone who's young for sure, but anyone who's a self-identified radical needs to test their work. 
and figure out if what they're doing is working. And you can't do that unless you start popping off bad Democrats in safe seats, target-rich environment, or start getting involved in your union and start seeing if you can you know, win a contract and win a really hard fight and win a great contract. So we need more yes or no hard deadline fights um, on the left side of the aisle so that people start to skill up, learn their mistakes, get better, learn more mistakes, get better, um, and make it so that we can win fast because we have until 2030 last I look to save the planet. Hi, I'm Felicia Wong, and I'm president and CEO of the Roosevelt Institute. So we have we have some questions today. We're talking about about the economy, as we always do, but specifically how the economy is sort of rigged toward inequality and also sort of keeping people there. So can you talk to us a little bit about the past like four or five decades and how how we got here and what some of those decisions were? Well, I think part of the problem is that for many decades, at least since the 1980s, um, you know, we have thought about uh, people in poverty um, as needing certain kinds of programs, right? Food stamp programs, other kinds of TANF programs. And look, these kinds of programs in the poverty alleviation frame generally is really important. But in a way, these are kind of like band-aids. Like these are not the right policies because they are not really cures and one of the other problems is that poverty isn't like a scratch or a bruise. We're talking about a really cancerous tumor, uh, and Band-Aids are really not the solution to the problem. So I think it's important to look at much deeper ways in which the structure of our economy is actually driving poverty. Right. And so, you know, Felicia, what I often say is that people are poor because they're not paid enough money. Right. <laughs> which seems right. really obvious. It's so simple. Yeah, it's really super simple in a capitalist economy. You know, you're not poor because you don't get food stamps. You're not poor because you didn't get rent assistance. You're poor because you didn't get paid enough money uh, by your, almost certainly by your employer. To, to be clear, there are some people who don't have jobs. Sure. There are people who definitely in our society, and, in, and to be fair, in every society, can't actually can't take care of themselves and, and and may not have the capacity to have a job, but that's a relatively small proportion of the people in our country who are struggling. The vast majority of people who are struggling actually do have jobs and are still poor. So how do we get there? Well, you know, I think one of the ways I like to think about this is the way like Martin Luther King thought about it. You know, his Poor People's Campaign from the mid 1960s really talked about. Yes, he definitely talked about the number one thing was a meaningful job at a living wage for every employable citizen. And he talked about access to land and he talked about access to capital and he talked about, you know, the right to organize. So all of these things together are the things that actually our economy doesn't do well at providing for most people. And that is why people are poor, right? Right. Some people have little or no capital. They have no hope of getting it in a capitalist economy, as you often say, Nick, as right. you just said, right? Some people live in places where work has 
totally disappeared, where there is no hope of work. You know, there remain, even in an economy that looks very bubbly, like our economy today, there remain neighborhoods where black men are still at 40% unemployment, right? Black men of working age. Um, Some people who have jobs, they can't organize for better wages. Um, Some people have no access to housing and no hope of getting housing. So these are all like very big problems. And again, not to denigrate food stamps. Food stamps are very important for many people, but that kind of approach is not what's going to get us out of poverty. So that's a long way of saying it. The short way of saying is we don't have the right policies, probably because we don't have the right analysis of what's wrong. I think lots of people currently think about markets as being these things that just operate perfectly by themselves, right? And that if a market is operating properly and government gets out of the way, then, you know, the supply curve and the demand curve are going to cross and that people will be paid what they're worth and that, you know, all people will be able to live a decent life. Um, But actually, that is not the way markets work. Markets are structured to work for some people and not for other people. Mm -hmm. So that we talk a lot at Roosevelt about the rules that we need to structure markets so they actually do work properly. And one of the things that we've seen now, just by way of example, is that the increase in corporate power, for example, in our economy means that we um, have companies that are making tremendous numbers of profits, as you have said, Nick, but those profits are actually going right back to the executives um, who take those profits out of the company um, in the form of stock buybacks, and they're not actually being uh, transmitted back to workers in the form of wages. So that that gets right back to where you started this conversation, Nick. People are poor because they are not being paid enough money. So what we need to then focus on are the rules that either allow people to do that or don't allow people to do that, the rules that would require paying a living wage or not. Yeah. So I, I have a question then, and this is sort of a kind of a big question, but um, how do you get right. then from the market will fix itself to we have to step in or sort of ensure that this, this playing field is leveled? Well, you know, <laughs> this is an answer you would expect from somebody like me because like I run a think tank, but like, <laughs> yeah, you have to look at the data, right? And, you know, here's one interesting statistic. All reduction in poverty has occurred through government action. It's government that reduces poverty rates. So 50 years ago, 1967, the poverty rate was 27% without tax credits and benefits. Um, Today, that number is 16% if you include tax credit and benefits, and all of that is through government programs. This is, you know, based on some work that Jason Furman recently did. So you really have to look at the role that a number of government programs play in reducing poverty, and yet still we have the kind of poverty rates, um, you know, that we were lamenting at the top of the hour, you know, the idea that we didn't say this, but, you know, at some point, over half of all Americans will live in poverty. Um, And my point is the way for us to get out of poverty is through government action. Some of that is through direct tax and transfers. And a lot of it, as we try to argue at Roosevelt, is actually through restructuring rules. So you don't have things like stock buybacks. And instead, you have things like higher wages. Yeah, absolutely. But Felicia, don't you think that the country's economy is at the point now where in many ways, I don't know how to say this, I don't mean to say that poverty isn't a problem, but it's almost becoming a second-order problem as 
most people in the middle class become poor. Yes. Right? Like, our language doesn't capture this very well because... We only have one word for poverty, poor, right? <laughs> right? But Well, and but, most people think of themselves as middle right. class, right? Even people who right. earn right. Yeah. well below the poverty line still consider themselves to be middle class. Yeah. Right. But frankly, we don't think about it that way at Roosevelt really for exactly the reason that you suggested, Nick, right? That because it's really not about a small fraction of poor people. It is really about the disenfranchisement and the lack of power and agency of the vast majority of Americans. And frankly, I think it's one of the reasons that Occupy took off in 2011 was because the tagline, we are the 99%, like that really resonated that, you know, mathematically it is true that the 1% were pulling away from the 99%, but it also is true that even people at the 70th percentile, even people at the 80th percentile felt very insecure, right? They had too much debt. They didn't know how they were going to pay their kids school fees. They weren't sure, you know, about whether or not they'd be able to afford a vacation or a restaurant meal or any of the things that we think about as sort of the markers of, you know, a modest middle class life. So I think that one of the reasons that, at least for a while, we were talking about this as inequality was to try to capture, and I'm not sure that inequality, by the way, is the right political frame either, Mm -hmm. because it feels very mathematical and like the economists love it, but like inequality still doesn't feel very human. And I think what we need is an economy that works for people. (laughs) And by the way, you know, a capitalism that works for more people. That's really what we ought to be focused on. But at any rate, you know, the poverty frame, which comes from the 1960s and 1970s, feels like it was an artifact of a time when, like, most people were not, in fact, poor, and there was more equality of opportunity, and people could expect that their kids would do at least as well and probably better than they would and have an economically secure life. And poverty was about alleviating the pain. That's when programs like, whether it's Head Start or food stamps or whatever, they, you know, they started in a period where we had to, we weren't looking at our whole economy, we were looking at people who, for some reason, yeah. um, often because of race or gender, by the way, but for some reason, we're not um, able to fully partake in a market economy. The situation now is totally different. So the poverty frame right now kind of feels like, yes, alleviating poverty is really important, but actually fixing our, the way our whole economy works, that's what's most important. I think once you, you know, one of the things I found in, in writing and reporting is when you really like sort of loop people in and, and place them on the spectrum and sort of show how their experience puts them not as much maybe in the comfortable middle class as they would think, or when you sort of show them the numbers or you sort of like loop them in, then everybody sort of feels a little bit poor a lot of the time. Uh, so I think there's sort of a pro and con there, but I think, you know, poverty alleviation, like you said at the, at the very top, I think it lets a lot of the systems off the hook that create poverty right. and that create that right. precarious middle class. Like if you're only focused exactly. on food stamps, you're not focused on, prison industrial complex, you're not focused on, you know, out of control medical bills, you're not focused on all these other huge systems that keep people not just poor, but keep them out of that upper middle class American dream echelon. I think that's exactly right. But I think one of the most pernicious ideas that actually a lot of people on our side, um, lots of progressives have come to believe, certainly neoliberals, as that 
you know, people are poor, people aren't paid enough because they're not well-educated enough. Right. And this is a super pernicious right. idea. Right. That is just right. objectively false. And that's not, right, that is not true. That is all, not right? true. But it's this trap that you can get into, which is that it was, which is to come to believe that the people at Walmart who are paid seven or eight bucks an hour are paid that because that's what they're worth, because that's right. be, all their educational attainment allows them to deserve. Well, because they didn't bother to, you know, Whatever. try, right? Whatever. Yeah. And it's a, it's a tricky area because on the one hand, yay, more education is always better. <laughs> and on the other hand, no, that's not why people are poor and it's not why people are poorly paid. So if Felicia Wong was in charge of everything, what would the top three things be that she would do to fix this mess? Sorry to put you on the spot there. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, you know, I do a couple things. I, I would definitely think about ways to kind of right size and or right incentivize uh, large companies. And, and, you know, kind of I would go uh, in the direction of Elizabeth Warren's new kind of accountable capitalism bill, which mm -hmm. talks about all the, all kinds of ways in which very large companies need to actually be good corporate citizens. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing I would do. Um I think the second thing I would do is to really make sure that kids of all races have enough capital, enough potential to have some kind of wealth. So whether it's a kind of baby bonds or like something so that at the very beginning of your life, you start out with at least some fighting chance for opportunity. Um, and then, you know, the third thing I would do, well... Do I get, can I have four? Yeah, you can have four. We're going <laughs> to okay. make a special right. exception this, for you. Right. The first thing I would do is to, and this is actually the hardest thing, I would absolutely desegregate our schools and our neighborhoods. I mean, I really, you, you said I could be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can just impose I your will that, on the world. I think that the idea that we are so divided geographically by race and as a corollary by income and or wealth is absolutely pernicious. So I would desegregate. And the last thing I would do is like make sure that we have a democratic institution, small D, not big D, like actually have a functioning democracy because I believe that only when people continue to have input and agency and voice in making all these decisions, only then would a system that you set up reasonably well from the beginning be able to have yeah. any fighting chance of self-sustaining. We've just heard clips today, starting with Pitchfork Economics laying out the absurdity of those who have opposed regulations throughout history. This is Hell discussed the degradation of workers' rights through the lens of neoliberalism. Delete Your Account looked at the lack of rights for pregnant people in the workplace. Pitchfork Economics spoke with Robert Reich about the death spirals caused by deregulation. Our activism for today is in opposition to marketplace platform laws being pushed by gig economy companies. The Dig gave a list of actions you can take to support the labor movement. And finally, we just heard Pitchfork Economics again, this time discussing the structural forces that keep people in poverty. Members will be getting a bonus episode today with an extended conversation on the interplay between neoliberalism and labor rights abuses, plus additional voicemails and conversation with members discussing healthcare costs. To hear that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a full member on Patreon at the $6 level, though if that's too steep for you, 
Consider getting the show ad-free for only two bucks a month, and remember that our weekly poll to help choose the topics we cover each week is free to everyone. You can simply follow the show on Patreon, no financials involved, and take part in the poll each weekend. Visit patreon.com slash bestofleft for all the details. Of course, you can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen. And now, we'll hear from you. from Texas. Um, I was just calling because I was listening to some of your commentary uh, or the show's commentary on universal health care. And uh, I just kind of wanted to share a situation that, that happened to me quite recently, actually. Um, I had a kind of a discussion slash debate with a, uh, with a libertarian who his idea of why health care in America was so expensive was because of regulations and patent laws and it, it kind of took me back for a second I kind of had to kind of step back and I was like you know how what can you explain and he really wasn't able to it was more of his this idea that companies are because of all these regulations because of all these loopholes they have to charge more for these products I can kind of tell this guy probably had not very much experience in the healthcare field, just the way he just discussed this. And so I found it really kind of interesting and funny and sad, this idea that regulations are what's causing the healthcare to be so expensive when, in my opinion, I think it's because we don't have enough regulations. We don't have enough things in place to kind of set caps on, uh, you know, profit margins that these, that these companies will try to get out of these products. And there's a lot of things that go into why healthcare in America is so expensive, one of which being the kind of the eternal struggle that healthcare professionals have had with insurance companies. You know, insurance companies don't want to pay the, pay the full price for the service or product, and so then doctors will charge more trying to get trying to get what they feel that they're owed, and then the insurance companies will decrease the price again. It's just an etern- eternal struggle. That's one That's one reason. And um, you could go on a whole uh, discussion about PBM, lack of transparency in development of these drugs and how much they actually cost to make. That's actually something that's not publicized. We have no idea how much profit a company will make on a drug because we don't even know how much money it takes to even make like to create one pill and granted that doesn't take into account all the research that had to go into it to make that even possible but still that information is not available to to most people and so uh, I felt kind of disheartened of course this is a libertarian so they, they are totally against everything that I feel is important in government to have in place to protect the average person, well, to protect anyone in particular. But um, I thought it was a, an interesting conversation that I felt like sharing. Um, and I wanted to thank you um, so much. I, I love the show. I love the perspectives you, you offer. Um, I love all the different ideas that I would never have thought of on my own on particular topics and and 
once it's brought up, it's like, oh, yeah, I never considered it from that angle. Um, I'm sure you know this, but I just, I can't, I can't express how much I appreciate it. Thank you and bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, and the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, uh, today, in response to Heather and what sounded like a very sad debate between herself and a libertarian who, who, according to her description, sounded even less informed than the average libertarian, at least on the topic of health insurance. So I just want to give some tips to either Heather or anyone else who, who may end up in a similar situation discussing health insurance with a libertarian who thinks that we shouldn't have more regulation because it's really regulation that's the problem based on the fallacy that the free market is best and and that's what our system is built on. I just want to lay to rest the idea that our current health insurance system has anything to do with the free market because our entire system is an accident of government regulation. So just first to lay something out to be clear, people like myself who believe in the power of government regulation to do good in the world, we are not in favor of every law that could ever be conceived of and passed to influence economies or (laughs) systems that exist in the world. There's a difference between good regulation and bad regulation, well-thought-out regulation and ill-thought-out or accidental regulation that ends up doing things people never had in mind at the time of the passage or uh, regulation that sort of uh, sets something in motion that ends up running out of control. And that's what we have with our healthcare system. So just to lay out the history, our healthcare system was born out of legislation that came during World War II. So the federal government was worried about inflation. So they had this idea, we're going to put caps on wages that can be paid because we don't want people to start getting paid way, way, way too much because there was a labor shortage. So if people are getting paid way too much, then prices could start going up and hyperinflation could kick in and then we'd be in real trouble. So, okay, we're going to have wage caps and and that'll sort of keep things at bay. But then the labor groups, of course, were pretty pissed off about not being able to get paid more money when they really deserved it. And so labor groups were going to go on strike. So they had to come to some sort of compromise. And the compromise that the War Labor Board came up with was, okay, we're not going to lift the wage caps but will exempt employer-paid health benefits from the wage controls and income tax, which created this enormous incentive because companies who wanted to find employees, they wanted to incentivize people to come work for them, they couldn't compete on wages. They couldn't say, oh, well, we'll, we'll pay you more than the other guy because of these wage caps. So because they couldn't compete on wages, but they could offer health insurance packages, that's how they began to compete with each other, offering more and more lavish health benefits in place of wages. And that set this pebble rolling down a snowy hill, and you end up with the massive historical accident of a health insurance system that we have today, which is on one hand, 
based on a whole bunch of private health insurance companies and on, on the other provided mostly by people's employers, which makes no sense if you were to create a thoughtful system or, or sit down and decide, okay, what's the best way to distribute health care and, and what's the best way to insure people against health costs? Even if you were going to do it as a private system and you sat down to figure that out, there is no way that our current system is what you would come up with. And speaking to the libertarian mindset, I would argue that if the government had done nothing to accidentally perversely create the incentive structure that they did, it's possible that the invisible hand of the market might have created something less horrific than what we have now. Not very much less horrific, and it's probably not something I'd be in favor of anyway, but the current system we have is an absolute accident not based on anyone doing anything thoughtful and not based on the invisible free hand of the market creating the best of all possible worlds as libertarians like to imagine that it does. So put the idea out of your mind that what we have has anything to do with the free market. And the analogy that I like to use for this, I, I came up with, honestly, this works for a lot of different parts of our society and economy, but it's especially good for healthcare because it's a health-based analogy. So our current system, this accidental system that ha you know the government put in these incentive policies and accidentally created our private health insurance uh, system based on employers providing health insurance, that's like getting your arm broken. It happened by accident. Uh, you end up in a lot of pain. Things are not good. And now you have one of two choices. You let it be. That would be the libertarian philosophy. No, no, no just let it work itself out. The invisible hand will come and just f fix it the natural way. And the other is, oh my God, let's fix this. Doctor would come in and reset your arm so that it can then heal in a healthy way so that it goes back to normal. Well, we tried to do that after the war was over and in, in, you know into the 40s, the, the government tried to sort of repeal these incentives that they had put in place with the idea of them being temporary. It was, it was a war measure to, to help deal with the uh, wage caps that they had put in place, but that was only supposed to be temporary. So they tried to repeal them. But what had happened is that the insurance companies had built up that industry to the point that they could defend themselves. And so they employed lobbyists and all the other things corporations do to prevent the government from implementing any sort of regulation or deregulation or reform of any industry. So nothing happened. We didn't reform the industry that was intended to be temporary. We didn't put in something more thoughtful. It wasn't just FDR. Truman wanted a universal healthcare system. JFK wanted a universal healthcare system, but no one has been able to reform what we have because the industry was always able to fend it off. So it's, it's like having a broken arm and someone comes in and says, oh, let, let's get that reset so it can heal properly. And you're like, no, 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 no. I just leave it how it is. Well, I, okay. So it healed kind of, but it's still pretty messed up. It doesn't work the way it's supposed to. It's misshapen, misformed, and, and not nearly as effective as it could be because it never healed properly. And the healing that needs to happen now that that broken arm has been allowed to heal over badly, unfortunately, we need to re-break the arm so that we can finally set it the way it needs to be set and then allow it to heal 
in a healthy way, in a way that will set it on a much better course for the rest of history. I mean, right now we could say like, okay, you can just let it limp along as it is, but it's a horrible system that doesn't work the way it's supposed to. And it's going to continue being bad for millions and millions of people into the distant future. Or we can go through temporary pain, break the system, reset it, and then allow it to heal, benefiting millions and millions of people into the future. And then just on to the the topic of healthcare costs and whether they're because of too much regulation or not enough, I I would sweep that entire discussion aside and say it's not about regulating the current system. The, The current system is total bullshit. The way to reduce costs is to completely change the way our health care and health insurance is administered. Just look around the world and see which systems save the most money. Obviously, it's not ours. We pay far more than any system that employs a, a single payer or a, a government run health insurance or health care program. No one should even be having a discussion about that. And, and then just the last thing I want to note, because Heather mentioned the, the sort of tension between health insurance companies and not wanting to pay the full cost of the health care that's being provided and so that doctors or hospitals raise their prices sort of correspondingly. And I just want to point out that there's a lot less – I've said this before on the show, but it, it's it's not it's not an intuitive point. So I want to make it again. There is a lot less conflict between the health insurance companies who pay for the health care and the health provider companies who set the prices, as you would think. You would think that they would be in conflict with each with each other. But health insurance companies make their profit as a percentage of their costs. So there's a health insurance company, and they have a, a pool of people who are paying in premiums to them, and they're going to have to pay out some amount of health care cost to these people who are paying their premiums. That's what insurance is all about. So, you know, you would imagine that the insurance company would want to pay as little in healthcare costs as they can, which to some extent is true. They, they do like to reject people's claims or, or their surgery procedures or anything like that. They do like to uh, reject people and, and say, you can't have, have that paid for by your insurance. But that's not all there is to it. it it's not like they're uh, going out making all their money by keeping expenses low and negotiating the best possible price for themselves because ultimately they make their money as a percentage of the total amount of money they spend. So this pool of people that you're a part of, you're paying your premiums in, that pool of people collectively, let's say their their total collective health care expenses is going to be $800,000 for a given year. Well, that insurance company knows that ahead of time because it is literally their job to know that sort of thing ahead of time. That is what actuarial tables are built to be able to predict. They know everything they can about you and everyone else in that pool, and their actuarial tables can predict, based on past experience, what's going to happen in the future. And so they know with uncanny precision that they are going to have to pay out $800,000 in medical costs. And so what they do is they charge premiums accordingly, and they set their premium rates to say, we're going to make back that $800,000 that we're going to have to spend, and a healthy amount of overhead, expenses, and profit for us to keep. 
So instead of charging premiums that add up to 800,000, they charge premiums that add up to a million because they get a 20% cut on top of whatever they spend. So, I mean, yeah, you're still thinking it seems like they could make more money for themselves if they keep their expenses low, if they were to negotiate prices with hospitals or doctors. But the easier way for an insurance company to make money is for health insurance costs to go up. Not because they want to spend money on healthcare, but if that's where your thinking stops, that, that's short-sighted thinking. You've got to think long-term. And it's the premiums, that's where they make their money, it's the premiums that get to be set based on the amount of healthcare expenditures they have. So you, you have that pool of people, they cost $800,000, they, the, the insurance company gets to tack on an extra 20 for themselves. Okay, that's great. $200,000, like that's an okay profit. But what if healthcare costs go up by 10 times or 100 times? Now, that same pool of people, instead of uh, costing an insurance company $800,000 in, uh, in medical expenses, what if those medical expenses are $800 million? Well, the insurance company will have known that ahead of time, and they'll simply get to set their premium rates to account for that. So instead of charging premiums that add up to a million dollars, 800000 for cost, 200000 for uh, for their own profit and administrative expenses, now they're going to spend $800 million in medical costs, but they get to keep $200 million for their administration and their overhead and the cost of their buildings and their CEO pay and their private jets and their profit for the company. So when you see it that way, of course, there is no downward pressure on health care expenses and the health insurance companies make more money for themselves the higher health care costs go. So if our system weren't perverse enough just by the sheer existence of a profit motive in the healthcare system, which is completely immoral and should not exist. We don't even have a functioning market because we don't have adversarial market participants. The insurance companies who pay for the healthcare actually want the prices to go up, and the people who provide the healthcare and get paid for services also want prices to go up, and the people who actually need the healthcare services themselves cannot possibly be expected to be the ones to negotiate down their costs at the moment in time when they need health care, because that's when you're sick or in need of surgery or dying or in mental anguish or whatever. This should all be self-explanatory. We individuals at a complete structural disadvantage in, in the best case scenario are then put at the further disadvantage of being sick or injured or whatever. And it is at that moment when we are expected to negotiate, which is never, ever, ever going to happen. So the system as it is, aside from being completely immoral, is totally, totally broken. And it is impossible for the free hand of the market to produce a fair and equitable system or any kind of a system that helps bring prices down. It cannot be done. The whole system needs to be rebroken, reset, and allowed to reheal again, finally, in a healthy way for the first time. 
As always, keep comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Best of the Left.